This morning, I want to deepen our understanding of the Lord's Supper, and this is an opportunity for us to participate in the Lord's Supper together. The timing is, is perfect as we round the turn again on our 28 days of prayer. What a, what, is there a better way to close this 28 days of prayer than with, uh, with a time at the table of the Lord? Amen. And so it's a perfect time for us, but it's also a perfect time to deepen our understanding of what it means to take part in this great sacrament. Um, and so I want to deepen your understanding on this, this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. There's three things I want to point to your attention on this morning. The wrong way to participate in the Lord's Supper, the right way to think about the Lord's Supper, and then a warning and recommendation regarding our participation in the Lord's Supper. The wrong way to participate in the Lord's Supper, the right way of thinking about the Lord's Supper, and then a warning and recommendation regarding our participation in the Lord's Supper. The first thing is the wrong way to participate in the Lord's Supper. The entire chapter of First uh, Corinthians chapter 11 can be boiled down to two particular traditions that Paul is working through. And for the most part, it appears that Paul was pleased with the way the Corinthians were holding fast to the traditions. However, he does seem to have issue with two, and he does seem to have more issue with one than he does the other. Now, the first tradition that he mentions is head coverings, and the Corinthians were obviously showing a few signs of struggle, but nothing that warranted an outright condemnation like we see with the second tradition, and that tradition being the Lord's Supper. Paul, from the very beginning of his mentioning of this second tradition of the Lord's Supper, is clear that he has no encouraging words to share with the Corinthians on this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, look with me, it says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I cannot approvingly praise you for how you are handling this tradition. So we have to ask ourselves, why is it that Paul appears to be so much sterner on this second tradition than he is on the first? And while I'm sure there are other reasons, there are at least two that I can think of worth considering here. The first reason for me is that this tradition is far too important to get wrong. It's so fundamental to the faith, and it so clearly reveals something about the faith to us that to mess with it is to cloud the picture of what our faith is about. This tradition is too important to get wrong. April 10th, August 27th, October the 14th, those days are etched into my memory. I don't forget those days. Why? Because those days are the birthdays of the closest people in my life. April 10th is Brian Jr., Brian Jr.'s birthday and my mother's birthday. August the 27th is Elijah's birthday. October the 14th is Candy's birthday. On the other hand, I don't have any recollection of the dates of any of those people losing their first tooth or the day that they made their First visit to the barbershop or the beauty salon or the first day of school. I don't know 
any of those dates, and no one expects me to know any of those dates because those days aren't nearly as special and nearly as important. In other words, this tradition carries more weight than all the others, which is one reason why Paul is a bit sterner about them messing with the tradition. But here's another reason that we get Paul's stern non-commendation. Not only is it too important to get wrong, but they get it horribly wrong. They miss it badly. How wrong do you ask? Well, verse 17 gives us an indicator of how wrong. Verse 17, again, read with me. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. They get it so wrong that Paul says, when you guys get together to honor this sacred tradition, to participate in this sacrament as a moment of worship unto the Lord, it is not simply unproductive. It is counterproductive. It is not simply that it doesn't, it's not simply that it doesn't make your community any better. It actually serves in making it worse. Folks, if we aren't careful, we can take good gifts, good things, good means of grace from God that are intended to strengthen us and encourage us and inspire us, and we can use those very things to tear us down and to destroy us and to divide us. The tools and means that God has used to nourish the church can have a debilitating effect on a church when the church uses those tools and means absent of the love and the power and the grace of God that he provides for those tools and means. The word of God in the hands of an arrogant know-it-all or in the, in the hands of arrogant know-it-alls can harden the hearts of its carriers and its receivers rather than soften their hearts and deepen their love for God and neighbor. Prayer in the hands of glory seekers can be used to elevate the proud while humiliating those in the lower seats. The Lord's Supper in the hands of a self-seeking, selfish church can be used to divide the household of faith more than it unites it. Paul seems to be pointing to this possibility here in Corinth, a tool of grace a means of grace that has been given to the church by God to strengthen the church is being used in such a way that they leave from one another's presence weaker as a body than when they arrived. The manner in which we engage with God's means can oftentimes be just as important as the means themselves. So how are they getting this wrong exactly? Well, there's a number of ways. The first way is that as they come to the table, they're coming to the table divided with cliques, insiders and outsiders. Verse 18, it says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. How can a gathering that is intended to nourish a community end up poisoning the community? Well, by creating cliques within the gathering, establishing in crowds and out crowds within the gathering, 
How do we create clicks within the gathering? By making some people worth your time and worth your energy and worth your attention based on anything and everything else that you have in common except the God that you serve. That's how clicks form. I love Paul's very on-the-nose wording here for us. He says, when you come together as a church... I'm hearing that there are divisions and factions among you. In other words, when you come together as an assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a gathering in the name of the triune God, when you come together as the people where division is supposed to be destroyed and unity is supposed to be on prominent display, I hear that there are divisions among you. We don't know all the particular areas that they are clicking up around the church of Corinth. But we can look at some of the clues and get an idea of a few areas in which this is happening. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Just based on those words alone, some of the clicking up during the supper had to be socioeconomic. In other words, according to scholars, cliques were naturally being established um, in, in, in Corinth because they were naturally established in antiquity. When you look at the ancient dinner parties of Rome, Clicking was just the normal thing to do. When you look at the ancient dinner parties of Rome, you would see that the seating of guests were based on their social status. When you look at the dinner parties of Rome, you would see that the order even in which the food was served was based on their social status. There's even some ancient writers that complain about the quality and the portions of food that they receive being less than the early preferred guests. So the early preferred guests would get the best seating, they would get the most food, and they would get the best quality food that was available. And then the folks of the lower social status would get what was ever left and whatever seat may have been available. In addition, some of the folks who had means weren't constrained in what they were able to get or when they were able to get there. And so what's happening in Corinth is that you got some people with means that have time to get there early, and then you got some people that don't have as flexible schedules or as, as the other people with means. They don't have those kind of jobs. They don't have those kind of bosses. The bosses are saying, hey, you're going to be here at this time. And so therefore, they're getting there late. Other people with means are getting there early, and they're eating the food up. In addition to that, the homes that these meetings would have most likely been in would have had limited space and seating in the triclinium or the the Roman dining room. Roughly about nine people, uh, scholars would say, could fit in this Roman dining room. And these were the people who would usually have been fed the most and would have been fed the best and would have been served by the servants of the house because these were the people with the most social status and social equity. Everyone else would have been on the outside of that dining room fighting for the scraps. 
So it was natural to separate based on the haves and the have-nots. In secular society, this was just the way. But in the church, the haves and the have-nots have been united through the life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and intercession of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Despite what the church is supposed to be united around, however, Paul without a doubt is seeing some of this haves and have-nots occurring in the Corinthian church, which is why he's addressing it like he's addressing it here. The haves are getting there early and clicking up with all the other halves. And they're eating the food up and drinking all the wine. Now, when, while many of us would read this and say, that's horrible, they would get there early and they would drink up all the, all the wine, we would never do that at City Light or any other church here. I hope we don't miss how easily that becomes us and how oftentimes that is us. You see, we naturally gravitate towards our affinity groups, meaning private school families gravitate towards private school families and public school families gravitate towards public school families and homeschooling families gravitate towards homeschooling families and highly educated Families gravitate towards highly educated families and less educated families gravitate towards less educated families and white collar salaried workers gravitate towards white collar salaried workers and blue collar wage grade workers gravitate towards blue collar wage grade workers and married couples versus widows and single mothers and folks in struggling marriages and the healthy and fit versus those struggling in their bodies. And when we do this, one goes hungry. Maybe not hungry on a meal, but possibly hungry on fellowship, hungry on care and attention, hungry on discipleship, hungry on mentoring, while others get full. Full on fellowship. Full on care, full on attention, full on discipleship, full on mentoring. You know, you may read this and say to yourself, well, well, this is far different from the Corinthians because we wouldn't do any of that on purpose. <laughs> but can you not see? There's nothing in this text that says that they are doing it on purpose. This is just the natural outflow of how we work. This is just how things work naturally. They are products of the culture. Social status is just natural. And so therefore, the important people are getting fed and getting attended to. The people with means are getting fed and attended to. And the people without means are getting pushed to the outskirts. And it's happening naturally. In other words, we don't have to work hard to develop quick, uh, click saints. They just flow with the current. We have to be intentional in order for cliques to not be built. We have to be intentional to build unity. We have to be intentional because that flows against the current. We have to work harder for that to be realized. 
You see, you have to go out of your way to connect with people who don't share the same educational level as you, who don't share the same socioeconomic status as you, who don't share the same political preferences and philosophies as you. You have to go out of your way to get care and attention from those folks, to establish fellowship and relationship with those folks, to build something with those folks. And when you don't go out of your way, you will naturally flow with the current to your affinity group practically every single time. Here's another natural outworking of these factions. There's, there's, there's the cliques that are happening, the division, but also selfishness and self-serving. Verse, 11, uh, verse 21, it says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not commend you. You see, instead of observing the less fortunate with the less flexible schedules, they are treated as invisible to the privileged in the church. They are ignored. The socially privileged go on and they serve all the good food and all the good wine and they drink and they eat and they're merry without the others and nobody thinks enough to say. All of us that are in this room right now have good food and good drink at home. But the people who are not in this room right now are not here precisely because they are having to work more while having less at home. Maybe we should wait on them. Instead, they say, well, I'm not gonna pass up a good meal here just because some folks didn't get here on time. They didn't get here on time, it's just their problem. All the while, never really inquiring or caring or caring enough to determine if the time that they have worked out suited the less flexible. Does that make sense? How intentional are you about creating space for the less flexible around you? Paul says this kind of faction building has a devastating effect. Paul says, do you despise the church of God that much that you would discount and ignore those who the Lord has joined you together as family with? Is your comfort and the satisfying of your appetite worth the humiliation of those who have less? Notice the conclusion that Paul comes to in verse 20 based on the conduct that is on display. Verse 20, look with me. It says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You can't call this the Lord's Supper because it is missing the very intention of the Lord's Supper. You can't call it the Lord's Supper because it's not even pointing to what it's supposed to point to. You know, we see other examples of this where God no longer sees our worship as worship based on how we're treating those around us. In Amos chapter 5, for example, God says through Amos, I hate and I despise your feasts, tools of worship. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, tools of worship. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, tools of worship. To the melodies of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters. 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, in Amos, they were neglecting the poor. They were making their lives more difficult, putting obstructions in their way to prosperity. They were afflicting the righteous. They were even cheating them. And so worship was no longer worship. You see, the heart in which we worship saints helps determine whether we are worshiping when we worship. The heart in which we worship helps determine whether we are worshiping when we worship. Sing while exploiting or ignoring the needy, and God says, that's a noisy song. It's no longer worship. Eat the supper while dividing and separating everything or separating over everything and anything rather than uniting under the banner of the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then the Lord's Supper becomes just another meal that you could, have, you could, you could have had at home. So how does Paul resolve this? He resolves this by taking us back to the originator, the originator of the meal, the creator of the tradition, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now Paul turns to the right way to think about the Lord's Supper. There's at least four things in this text that I believe um, are, are that, that I believe includes our participation in the Lord's Supper, and it should cause us to think more deeply on these things. Or there are four things that we should think more deeply on as we participate in the Lord's Supper. But before I get to that, let me just say a couple of things that the Lord's Supper is not. According to Baptists, that would be us. We do not believe that the Lord's Supper is transubstantiation. That is the Catholic Catholic belief that the Lord actually takes on physical nature of the bread and the wine when we eat it. We don't believe that. We also do not believe that it is consubstantiation. That is the Lutheran belief that the Lord assumes some form of presence within the bread and wine like water in a sponge. In other words, he is not the bread and the wine, but his presence is within the bread and the wine. Baptists don't believe that either. But here's what Baptists do believe. We do believe that it is the representation of the body and the blood of our Lord and something more is happening. In other words, the bread and the wine is just that, bread and wine. They only serve as representatives or representations. Yet something is going on during our participation in the Lord's Supper that's deeper than just eating bread and wine. If you recall back in a couple of chapters ago or one chapter ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it said this in verse 14 through 18. He said, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Listen, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Now, the word participation that you keep hearing and I keep emphasizing means fellowship. 
In other words, that there is some fellowship, some participation with God as we come to the table of God. Verse 18 says, go back and look at Israel because they participated in the altar when they offered the sacrifices and they ate the sacrifices. And when you go back and you look at Israel, Deuteronomy, for example, chapter 14, one of the things that you hear is that, is that the, the scripture says um, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God Always, So he's talking about this ideal of eating and taking part in this, this, this sacrifice and this altar work. But then he says in verse 26, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. You shall eat there before the Lord your God. In other words, God is present at the altar as you eat. Does that make sense? Participating. So, so Israel participated as they ate with God. God was present with them as they ate. So to participate is to in some way dine and eat in the presence of God. And therein lies the significance of the Lord's Supper. Even though the bread and the wine is not transformed into the body of Christ, there's still wonderful things happening as the Holy Spirit draws near to the table with us as we come to the table and we eat and we drink. So, four things that's happening at the table. Number one, we are being reminded of our unity in Jesus Christ. We are partaking of the body and the blood of one. It is absolutely no accident that Jesus, on the night he was, he was betrayed, he took a single loaf of bread and breaks the bread so the disciples can be fed from that one loaf. And it is also no accident that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took one cup and everybody drank from that cup. It is one loaf of bread and one cup of wine because the supper should help us bring back to our attention the union that is only found in the body of Christ. One body, many members. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. This is what makes the Corinthians earlier attitude that we just read about so unacceptable. You see, to come to the Lord's table in any other way was to ignore one of the purposes and the meanings for the Lord's table. To come to the Lord's table thinking about self-indulging and thinking about being clicked up and divided based on cultural and social affinities is to miss the point entirely of the Lord's table. Another thing, that we're, that another thing that's happening at the Lord's Supper is that we are being reminded of the whole of Christ in us. We are taking into ourselves the fullness of Christ. It's a reminder. You know, in John chapter 6, there was this moment where a bunch of people were following Jesus. Verses 1 and 2, it talks about how many people were following Jesus. By the time you get to verse 66 of chapter 6, it says, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
And so it was a bunch of people following him in the beginning and then barely anybody following him at the end. And what happened between verses 2 of chapter 6 and, chapter, and verse 66 of chapter 6? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So the Lord's table then is a reflection of the miracle of the Holy Spirit and causing some of us to embrace that hard teaching that caused everybody to scatter when he said it. What? Eat? What? You? No, I'm out of here. But what was he saying there? He was saying to feed on the flesh and drink of the blood of Christ is to completely abide in him and to have him completely abide in us. And so when we come to the table and we eat what represents the blood and the flesh of Christ, what we are, what we are seeing in that moment or what we are proclaiming in that moment is that Christ is in me and I am in him. The, Lord, the Lord's table reminds us and tells others that we have resolved in our hearts to take all of Jesus not just the miracles, not just the cute stories, but we've resolved to take them all. The difficult commandments, the suffering, whatever comes, whatever is a part of him, we have taken him on. And in return, he has taken us on. Does that make sense, saints? Another thing that's happening in this at the table is that we are being reminded of the Lord's death on our behalf. The Lord's Supper was established as a means of bringing us back to the cross, recentering our thoughts on the cross. John Calvin called the Lord's Supper a mirror to look through to see again Jesus Christ crucified, bearing our sins, rising from the grave with all power in his hand and granting us eternal life. You see, in drawing us back to the cross, the supper should also cause us to reflect on our blessings through Christ and the curses that we've escaped and are escaping because of Christ. By the way, this is why selflessness is an inherent attribute of our participation in the supper. It is the height of contradiction to participate selfishly as we celebrate the most selfless act in the history of all creation and all, all universes known and unknown. The death of the perfect Savior for the salvation of woefully inadequate and imperfect sinners is the height of selflessness. And so to come to the table selfishly to celebrate the height of selflessness is a contradiction, which is why Paul says this is not the Lord's Supper that you're performing. Does that make sense? Then lastly, the Lord's Supper is proclaiming the Lord's death. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death is, or the Lord's Supper is a 
proclamation, a, a declaration, an announcement. It means pro- proclaim means to publicize. It means to preach. And so our participation in the Lord's Supper is a means of visually preaching the good news. It is in some measure telling the story of the gospel again. It is announcing again to ourselves and to the watching world that salvation has come only through Jesus Christ. It is declaring to the world that the death of Christ has brought eternal life to all those who place their trust in him, to all those that eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. In other words, take him in completely. So if your participation in the Lord's Supper is is a means of proclaiming the gospel to the world, based on your attitude towards the Lord's Supper, what does the world think about the gospel that you are proclaiming? Based on your attitude, based on how you come to the table, what is the world saying and what, is, what are those around you saying about the gospel that you are proclaiming in that moment? Lastly, again, a warning and a recommendation. So bad news or the wrong way, the right way to think about it, and then finally a warning and recommendation. Verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul gives a warning. He says, whoever drinks and eats unworthy will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, one thing we know it does not mean is that you have the ability to come to the altar having committed no sin and being sinless when you come. John Calvin, again, had people in his day who were claiming to be, to be doing just that, to, be, to, to come to the table perfect. And he responded by saying that that's like sick people refusing to take medicine. You see, saints, the table is where we are supposed to be renewed. The table is where we are supposed to be revived and where we are supposed to be strengthened. If our focus has faltered, the table is the place where it should be be restored. And if we are repentant, God is more than able to grant grace and forgiveness and strength so that we may continue to fight the good fight of faith. And he can very much use the Lord's Supper in order to do that. So the table isn't for perfect people. The table is for thirsty people, hungry people, famished and parched people. You see, the Greek text for unworthy means treating it too common doesn't mean that you're coming to the table perfect. It means that you're treating it like it's no big deal, like it's just any other act or any other meal that you can participate in, basically like the Corinthians were doing, taking a meal that was supposed to reflect selflessness and instead reflecting selfishness through it, taking a meal that was supposed to reflect joy through denial and instead demonstrating joy through decadence. Treating it callously. In other words, just another thing to do, not thinking about what it means, not seeking to proclaim the gospel in it, not seeking to recount what Christ suffered on your behalf. 
treating it with rebellion in our hearts, mocking the table by continuous acts of disobedience or taking the Lord's Supper, knowing that you're doing nothing to honor your participation in it. Just living your life, walking away from the table and living your life however you want to live it and just coming back to the table again with the same carefree attitude. Or as we saw in Corinth, selfishness, looking to yourself during the time that Christ should be most magnified. Being unwilling to reconcile with brothers and sisters who you have problems with because you're worried about what? What, what? what does that say about me? When you're coming to the table and should be thinking about, well, what does it speak about Jesus? Does that make sense? So what does Paul say happens to those who drink in a manner that is unworthy? He says in verse 29 that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So that's why many of you are ill right now, weak, sick. Some have died. But if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if we examine ourselves. Judgment happens. Judgment happens. That's harsh language for a contemporary culture. But Paul says it with clear, with, with clear words. When we come to the table and we don't discern the Lord's body properly, then we risk judgment, sickness, illness, death. We, we risk judgment of God when we don't come to the table and rightly discern the Lord's body. And so Paul says in verse 28 that we should examine ourselves. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He recommends examination. In other words, how do you, how do, you do that? When you come to the table, your eyes should be fixed clearly on Jesus. You see, if your eyes are fixed clearly on Jesus, then you wait for everyone to come. Why? Because the Lord supplied you when you had nothing to offer him. When you came to him in, his, in your meager estate, he provided for you in abundance. And so there's no need to operate selfishly. See, when, when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you don't come to the table harboring bitterness and, 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 and unforgiveness in your heart. Why? How could you with your eyes fixed on Jesus? When you think about all that he's forgiving you of, when you think about the fact that he does not harbor any bitterness towards you, that he does not harbor any ill will towards you, how could you come to the table with bitterness in your heart? And so to examine yourself is to come to the table with your eyes fixed on what Jesus has done for you. Because in having your eyes fixed on what Jesus has done for you, it releases whatever selfishness might be in you. And then it also reminds you that he saved you. You cannot save yourself. And so you don't come to the table with haughtiness, with pride, with arrogance. You don't come to the table with your socioeconomic status, looking down on others, saying that you're better because you realize that you are not your savior, that he is. And that out of that comes an abundance of humility for you to partake and for you to partake with gratefulness in your heart that he has indeed saved you. And so let us come to the table today with our eyes fixed on Jesus 
Let us examine ourselves, not by an, a, a, a useless effort of trying to save ourselves, by being good enough. Let us examine ourselves by turning our attention onto the one who has saved us and let it shape the way that we come. Let's pray. God, we love you. We have prayed, Lord God, today for a revival.